The year, 1918. The place, Europe. On November 11th, the guns on the Western Front fall silent. The Great War is over, but for some countries, the nightmare has only begun. Turmoil and chaos will engulf the world after the armistice. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. This is episode 10, After the Armistice. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope this finds you well. Today's episode is about the chaos that gripped the world after World War I, and I am super excited to tell you guys all about it. It is quite a story. This is a non-traditional episode for me. It's a different kind of episode, so I hope you'll be on board with what I'm trying to do today. It's a concept episode almost. Couple things I need to say. First, it's not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on, especially today. This podcast is PG 13. The language remains clean. The content is not, 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 not clean. There is a content warning today for anti Semitism, racism, sexual violence, and some pretty horrific other kinds of violence. So please be forewarned. I'm not going into detail, but they are present. Next, all my sources, some maps, some commentary, we post on my website. So if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's do it. Today's story begins with a question. When does a war end? More specifically, when did World War I end? Well, there's a famous saying. Wikipedia and most sources will have an exact date and time for you. The 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. 11 o'clock on November 11th, 1918. That is the date that the ceasefire went into effect on the Western Front, where British, French, and American forces have been fighting the German Empire. That's why November 11th is remembered as Armistice Day in many countries around the world, and as Veterans Day in the United States. This is the day the Great War, the World War, the war to end all wars, ended. But I think they're all wrong. Yes, I, James Hauser, I'm telling all the experts, all the historians that they're wrong. The arrogance, right? But I have my reasons. The war ended for some people on November 11th, 1918. The French, some of the British, some of the Americans. But what about the rest of the warring powers? What happened to the four empires, the German, Austro-Hungarian, Russian, and Ottoman empires that entered World War I? Those empires were gone, swept into the dustbin of history. And it was in their ruins that, in my opinion, the First World War continued until at least 1923. Not only did the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War begin during the war as a result of the war and continue long after it supposedly ended, but that conflict spilled over into many other areas as well. Eastern and Central Europe, along with the Middle East, were consumed with revolution, terror, counter-revolution, ethnic and political and social violence that went on for years after the armistice of 1918. 
But even in the victorious countries, and in those countries that weren't torn apart, the bitterness and trauma created by the First World War spawned different forms of violence. Racial violence, political violence, labor violence, and terrorism wreaked havoc from the United States to Ireland to Germany. These reverberations also lasted at least until 1923. But most of the history books after World War I, most of your high school classes that covered World War I, will rarely talk about the aftermath. They'll usually set go from World War I to the Roaring Twenties. Maybe they'll talk a little bit about Hitler, but that's about it. This entire period of history, from 1918 to 1923, usually just gets skipped. And it shouldn't be. Because it was almost more important than the First World War itself, because of the general havoc it wreaked on the world and the psychological legacy it left in the minds of those that experienced it. So today, we'll be talking about the chaos that took hold of Europe, the Middle East, and America after the armistice of 1918. We're going to focus on three overriding themes. Number one, revolution. Number two, nationalism. And number three, bitterness, and how they contributed to the brutalization of Europe that would go on to darken the continent for decades. This is a different kind of episode because my goal is to show how all these events across the world were interlinked, part of a big continuing conflict that stretched across the globe. We're going to move pretty quickly, and I'm not going to go into any one event in too much detail. Those are for future episodes, possibly. And you'll thank me for leaving out a lot of that detail because, well, a lot of this stuff I'm talking about today is pretty dark. I'll be a little less jokey than usual as a result. But if you need to breathe, there will be breaks. When I stop talking and the music comes in, smoke them if you got them. Do the thing you gotta do. Alright everyone, pick a faction, pick a flag, grit your teeth, and let's go on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? Oh, where to begin? Well, we need to start with Russia. Russia was the first country to be knocked out of World War I, the first country to leave, the first country to sign an armistice. And this is intrinsically linked to the revolution. The incompetence of the Tsarist government, the growing agitation for political freedom, massive military defeats, widespread food shortages, and a country and army that had grown sick of war all contributed to the ultimate collapse of the Russian Empire. The huge pressures, demands, and losses of World War I caused many countries to snap from the strain, and Russia was the first to go under. We discussed this in a little bit of detail back in Episode 4 about the Battalion of Death. In March 1917, the Russian Revolution began, when a series of strikes, food riots, and military mutinies caused the abdication of the Tsar and the creation of a liberal, provisional government. But the provisional government, dominated by the nobility and upper classes, was just as helpless to cope with the pressure of world war as the Tsar had been. They only lasted around six or seven months before they were overthrown as well. This time by the far-left Bolshevik party of Vladimir Lenin. Vladimir Lenin and his Bolshevik party are some of the most important figures in this story, not just because of what they did, but because of what they represented, what they unleashed. 
The Bolsheviks were Marxist radicals who believed in the idea of a revolutionary vanguard, a small party of enlightened individuals that would seize power and convert a country to socialism. After Lenin's October Revolution, he and the Bolsheviks founded a socialist republic, dedicated to transforming the former Russian Empire into the world's first explicitly Marxist state. It was this entity that would eventually become the Soviet Union. Lenin's goals included the abolition of property, the elimination of class, the destruction of capitalism, and Russia's exit from World War I. Now, Lenin's successful October Revolution was a lot of things to a lot of people. To socialists and communists worldwide, it was a model, a thing to work towards. But for the middle and upper classes of those same countries, it was their worst nightmare, the most terrifying thing they could imagine, a radical left-wing revolution that ended up overthrowing the entire structure of society. Lenin and his Bolsheviks cast a long shadow over the next few years, you could almost say the next eight decades until the end of the Cold War, as Europe descended into chaos. It was Lenin and his Bolsheviks and his revolution that introduced the ingredient of Marxist revolution, our number one element, remember, revolution, into the darkest fears of Europeans. If the czars of Russia, the most conservative autocratic government in the world, could fall victim to a left-wing conspiracy, then, then everyone was in danger. As the fear of Bolshevik revolution spread across the world, Lenin, now in power in Russia, got to work fulfilling one of his promises to end the war. But there was one big problem. The Germans had the new Bolshevik government over a barrel, and they knew it. The Russian army had disintegrated, the country was in chaos, and fighting was already breaking out between pro and anti-revolutionary factions. That meant that Germany could basically take whatever she wanted in the peace deal. They could, it was, an, it was a blank check. So in March 1918, the Bolsheviks and the Germans signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which would remove Russia from World War I. The peace terms were harsh. For all the later Germans squealing about the Treaty of Versailles that the Allies imposed on them, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk disemboweled the Russian Empire. Under the terms of the treaty, Russia lost the Baltic states, Belarusia, Ukraine, and Finland to German or German puppet rule. Russia lost 90% of its coal production, a third of its population, and half of its industry. It would be like if the United States surrendered everything west of the Mississippi. But Lenin agreed to this peace because the Germans were no longer his biggest problem. Lenin had to give up all these resources, all this land, because he needed to focus his attention on different enemies. The first armistice had been signed, but after the armistice, the fighting continued. The Russian Revolution did not go unchallenged. I cannot stress this enough. When Russia left World War I, that meant things got worse. Russia stepped straight from World War into Civil War. And if the World War had been bad, the Civil War would be a disaster. Even as the ink was drying on the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, a coalition of Russian groups was forming to resist Lenin's Bolshevik Revolution. Lenin's communist forces are usually called the Reds in this conflict after the color of worldwide revolution. So this grab bag of anti-Bolshevik factions are broadly known as the Whites. And I should emphasize grab bag. The Reds versus Whites struggle of the Russian Civil War can be simplified as the Bolsheviks versus everybody else. Monarchists, liberals, anarchists, progressives, borderline fascists, and even socialists that just weren't lefty enough for Lenin. 
anyone who had a bone to pick with the Reds ended up joining the Whites, even if they had nothing else in common. Now, these people did not work together well, so they often ended up under scattered leaders and in different locations and sometimes fighting amongst themselves. There was Alexander Kolchak's Siberian Army, Anton Denikin's Volunteer Army in the south, the Czechoslovak Legion in the Ural Mountains, which is a whole different story, the Kuban and Don Cossacks, the Black Sea Fleet, you name it. But even red versus white doesn't really begin to describe the just absolute turmoil of the Russian Civil War. There were other factions that fought both the whites and the reds. This included many nationalist movements, countries that didn't want to be part of Russia anymore, but we'll get to them. Then there were the Greens, peasant anarchists that just wanted to protect their communities from both sides and fault everyone else. Nestor Makhno, one of the Green leaders, founded a Ukrainian anarchist republic that clashed with both the Reds and the Whites. So yeah, it was utter chaos, a complete and total breakdown of governmental authority across the former Russian Empire. The Russian Civil War is absolutely bonkers, I'm barely scratching the surface. And then you have other countries. Germany had forces occupying bits and pieces of Russia until they were finally defeated by the Allies, so you have to factor them into a lot of this conflict as well. But also, the Allies sent intervention forces to help the Whites against the Reds. So that's how you get British, French, American, and Japanese forces occupying bits of Siberia or Ukraine and fighting with the Reds and the Greens. Here's your trivia question. When did the United States invade Russia? Because we totally did. In 1918, about 9,000 men as part of the Allied Intervention Forces. So now you know. But the Western armies weren't really able to have much of an impact on the course of the Russian Civil War. They gave guns and money to the Whites, but they weren't really active anywhere else. The West could do little but watch the chaos unfold. But the Western interventions in support of the Whites did help to fuel communist paranoia. To Lenin, it looked like a worldwide capitalist conspiracy was forming to destroy the revolution, which, to be fair, he was a little bit right, and drastic measures were required. What was required was the Red Terror. State terror was the responsibility of the Bolshevik Party's secret police, the Cheka, headed by the Polish-born revolutionary Felix Jurgensky who had been tortured in Tsarist Russia's labor camps before the revolution. Many of the terror's main architects had gone through the same experience. They had been exiled to Siberia and traumatized and brutalized in the labor camps. The Red Terror was getting its revenge on the old Tsarist system that had tortured and exiled and brutalized them, and now they believed they were taking an eye for an eye. The communists didn't invent the gulags. They just put them under new management. Jurgensky and the Cheka unleashed the terror against people they decided were enemies of the revolution. It was the OG, modern Orwellian police state, where neighbor could denounce neighbor and brother could denounce brother. The terror could target people just because they were orthodox priests, or a peasant who just seemed too rich, or even striking factory workers who weren't doing what Lenin said, which, you know, it's not what Kami is supposed to do is attack striking factory workers. Executions took place in basements or fields or villages. Some Cheka detachments organized or had quotas for the killing. You know, we need 50 deaths per week. Others took husbands hostage, then forced their wives to gain their loved ones' freedom with unmentionable favors. Priests, monks, and nuns were crucified or drowned in boiling tar as an insult to Christianity, the old system that they were overthrowing. The Red Terror knew very few bounds. 
Soon the terror began to spread out into the countryside. Lenin's new socialist policies required the forced confiscation of food, but the peasants resisted because they were already starving half the time, and the Red Terror was deployed on them as well. Peasants who tried to hide food were designated kulaks, the Russian epithet for a rich peasant. The Cheka and military food brigades rampaged across the countryside, killing or torturing peasants who hid food from the people, burning entire villages. The peasants resisted, cutting hammers and sickles into the foreheads of requisitioning squads, or crucifying them, or nailing them to trees with railway spikes. The Bolsheviks responded in kind, using aerial bombing and poison gas on peasant villages. Lenin wasn't worried about going too far. He was worried about not going far enough. Here is what Vladimir Lenin said in August 1918. The interests of the entire revolution require this because now the last decisive battle with the kulaks is underway everywhere. One must give an example. Hang. Hang without fail so the people see no fewer than 100 known kulaks. Rich men. Bloodsuckers. Number two, publish their names. Number three, take from them all the grain. Number four, designate hostages. Do it in such a way that the people will see, tremble, know, shout. They are strangling and will strangle to death the bloodsucker kulaks. In late 1918, as the white armies began to push the Reds back in Siberia, the Cheka committed its most famous executions. The Tsar, his wife, and their five children were murdered, and their bodies desecrated and destroyed. The killing of the royal family shocked the rest of the world. It was the most famous crime of the Bolsheviks, but they were were only the most famous of the many victims of the Red Terror. At least 100,000 people were killed by the Cheka and its subsidiary organizations, and many more were tortured. I know that's just a number, but that's 100,000 people. That is an extraordinary amount of people, and we're just getting started. As the whites advanced, they responded to the Red Terror with a white terror of their own. While the Reds focused on class enemies, the Whites took out their anger on different groups. Encouraged by the presence of several notable Jewish leaders in the Red faction, White leaders came to associate the Bolshevik Revolution with a Jewish conspiracy. Soon White factions in Siberia and Ukraine were using long, old traditions of Russian anti-Semitism to gin up hatred and pogroms. Uh, prior to the Holocaust, Russia was the most famously anti-Semitic country in the world, far more so than Germany. The Ukrainians, Poles, and other nationalist groups joined in, with the upshot being that around 100,000 Jews were murdered in various massacres throughout Eastern Europe from 1917 to 1922. Sort of a preview of the Holocaust. But the White Terror was happy to go after captured socialists, or members of labor unions, or even pointy-headed academics that they believed to encourage the revolution. Possibly as many as 300,000 people were murdered by the White Terror in the Russian Civil War. Guys, these numbers are just going to keep coming. They sound cold and dead, but these are, these are enormous numbers of almost all innocent people. The Jews were far from the only victims of the Whites, and the peasants were far from the only victims of the Reds. As the Russian Civil War continued, every side took part in self-perpetuating cycles of violence. The rumors of yesterday's atrocities justified today's revenge. The confiscation of food and the destruction of property, the devastation the armies created, caused homelessness, starvation, and disease. And don't forget, this is about the time the Spanish flu was hitting, so that also made everything worse. 
The death toll of the red and white terrors was staggering, but far more people died of the secondary effects of war, of hunger, typhus, exposure, than directly at the hands of either faction. And no one was immune. Now, this wasn't just happening out in the villages and in, to the peasants. Here's what one observer said of starvation in Moscow. Death was now more in evidence than life. Before my eyes died Fyodor Byatyushkov, the famous professor of philology, poisoned from eating uneatably filthy cabbage. Another one to die from hunger was Espen Zherdov, professor of history and literature. He who gave to the Russian people entire editions of Shakespeare, of Schiller, and of Pushkin. At the same time, the philosopher Vivi Rosanov succumbed to starvation in Moscow. Before this death, he roamed the streets in search of cigarette ends with which to appease his hunger. The military campaigns of the Russian Civil War carried this brutal violence with them wherever they went, even after Trotsky and his Red Army managed to turn the tide in the Bolsheviks' favor. After the Reds defeated Kolchak and his Siberian army in the summer of 1919, the White Armies began to disintegrate into banditry and outright barbarity. Baron Roman von Ungern-Sternberg's White Cavalry Division blazed a trail of depravity and destruction across Siberia and Mongolia, committing horrific acts of rape and murder until they were finally captured in Mongolia, and Ungern-Sternberg was executed after a show trial by the Reds. He was only one of many sick human beings that the Russian Civil War created. The local resistance continued until 1922, and many parts of the former Russian Empire were still in complete chaos until the mid-1920s. The Russian Civil War resulted in victory for Lenin and his Bolsheviks. But they inherited a broken country. Russia lost 1.7 million dead in the First World War, but at least 5 million during the Civil War from all causes. 2 million refugees had fled. The economy had ceased to exist. Hunger and disease were rampant, with some people resorting to cannibalism, with photographic evidence, by the way, to survive. Most tragic of all, in my opinion, by 1922, there were around 7 million street children in the cities of Russia, homeless, orphaned, or separated from their families. Russia had been broken, not by World War I, but by the revolution and civil war that came after the armistice. Imagine telling these people that the war had ended in 1918. But even as Russia was descending into hell, World War I had continued everywhere else, and by late 1918, the Central Powers were on the brink of destruction. Bulgaria was the first to fall, when a breakthrough by Serbian and French troops in the Balkans forced them to beg for peace in September 1918. They were followed by the Ottoman Empire, which was being invaded from the south by British forces. The British broke the Ottoman front line in Palestine, and by October they had captured Damascus and Aleppo. The Ottomans signed their armistice on October 30th. A few days later, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had been defeated by the Italians, was forced to sign their armistice on November 3rd. But Austria-Hungary had basically fallen apart by that point anyway. All that was left was Germany. From August to November 1918, the Germans had been driven back on the Western Front by Allied forces, American, British, and French, in some of the bloodiest battles in the history of the world, and the army was showing dangerous signs of falling apart. The breaking point finally came when the sailors of the German Navy launched a mutiny on November 3rd, 1918, and the Kaiser's government was forced to admit that they could not continue the war. The Kaiser abdicated, and the new democratic government of Germany agreed to an armistice. 
On November 11th, 1918, the guns went silent on the Western Front. The First World War was over, in theory. But in practice, as the shattered, defeated empires of the Central Powers struggled to retain order and deal with the consequences of defeat, their countries fell into the grips of political chaos. Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Bulgaria all had new democratic liberal governments take over from the old monarchies. But these liberal governments found themselves having to foot the bill for the war. They literally just came into existence and were immediately presented with catastrophe. Their countries were devastated by millions of casualties, fuel shortages, the Spanish flu, starvation, which helped fatally undermine the newborn democracies. They started in the hole and they couldn't get out of it. And if that wasn't bad enough, there was now the threat of revolution. The Germans had reason to be worried. As troops were transferred away from the Russian front, they had been chanting revolutionary and anti-war slogans from the train cars. Many of them had absorbed radical revolutionary ideas from the very Russians they had been fighting against. And then, even as the last hours of the First World War were supposedly taking place, the sailors' mutiny at Kyle had sparked a German revolution. The movement spread like kudzu across the country, with soldiers and workers' councils, some calling themselves Soviets, forming in cities across Germany. As German society tried to cope with the loss of the war and the destruction of its empire, revolution seemed just around the corner. In Vienna, there was communist rioting and agitation, and the rioters occupied public buildings. But it was in Hungary that the scary events took place, the ones that would make all of Europe shake in fear. After the armistice, a liberal democratic Hungarian republic was founded to break away from the old Austro-Hungarian state. But in March 1919, a Russian-style revolution explicitly modeled on the Bolshevik Revolution overthrew the Republic in Budapest and proclaimed a socialist state. Its leader was Bela Kun, a Bolshevik and close confidant of Vladimir Lenin. Bela Kun copied his mentor and engineered his own Red Terror in Hungary with an armed gang called the Lenin Boys that killed and tortured people across the countryside. Armored trains full of communist agitators rolled back and forth throughout the country, dispensing the Red Terror. Bela Kun's communist government in Hungary only lasted about 133 days before it was overthrown by the Romanian army. The Romanians? What? Yeah, okay, we'll get to that. But what comes after the Red Terror? You guessed it, the White Terror. Far right-wing forces under Admiral Miklos Horthy launched a campaign of suppression and brutal violence against anyone who looked vaguely communist, including, of course, Jews. Because the Jews are just not safe in Europe from 1917 to 1923, or really ever. In the aftermath of revolution and invasion, Horthy installed something like a very, very proto-fascist regime in Hungary and he would remain in power until World War II. Hungary was independent, but in the grip of a dictator. Revolution seemed like a pandemic. In Bulgaria, leftist agitation collided with the king and the army in a bitter civil war. In Italy, two years of left and right wing violence from 1919 to 1920 were called the Biennio Rosso. It was just everywhere. Like, the Bolshevik Revolution had just popped the cap off all these revolutions sprouting up all over the world. They began to spring up even in countries that weren't involved in World War I. Spain had the Red Triennium from 1918 to 1921. The Netherlands had the Red Week of 1919. 
Persia, Argentina, South Africa, Romania, Mexico, countless other countries all had left-wing revolutionary movements spring up in the years after 1918, many of which explicitly modeled themselves on the Russian Revolution that had terrified the rest of the world. Now in the 21st century, we have good reasons to think that communism is like a boogeyman. To a lot of people, it's kind of silly that anyone was ever so scared of communism and socialism and radical left-wing revolution. But keep in mind that people back then had very real reasons to be just terrified of a socialist revolution because Russia was right there. Everybody knew what was happening over there. All the stories that came out of there were horrible. And it was obviously a whirlwind of violence and terror. Lenin's revolution wasn't just the one that started them all, but the example many left-wing movements openly aspired to. In the wake of the Red Terror and the Russian Civil War, revolution became the great icy fear that lingered in the hearts of the world's societies. In America, all this lunacy became known as the First Red Scare. You thought McCarthy was bad, look up the First Red Scare sometime. But this was a worldwide panic, and it painted the years after the armistice in terror and paranoia. But still more uncertainty would come in the wreckage of empires. Four empires, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire, had gone into World War I. None of them came out. It was in the ruins of empires that new nations would fight to be born. How was a nation born, you ask? Well, same way a baby is born. Confused, screaming, and covered in someone else's blood. Four land empires existed in Europe and the Middle East before 1914. Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire. Each of these empires held large minority groups within its borders, even if there was a dominant group of some kind or another. In 1914, Vladimir Lenin referred to Russia as the prison of the peoples because of all the groups, Ukrainians, Finns, Lithuanians, Poles, Georgians, Armenians, uh, Central Asian Muslims, etc., you name it, under the rule of the Russian Tsar. But in a way, all four of these empires have been prisons of peoples. Germany ruled over a large Polish population, as did Austria-Hungary and Russia. They had divided Poland up between them. Austria-Hungary was a straight-up smorgasbord of minorities. Even the ruling German and Hungarian ethnicities together only made up 42% of the population. The Czechs, Slovaks, Croats, Serbs, Poles, Romanians, Slovenes, Ruthenians, and Italians, and some other groups made up the rest. The Ottoman Empire, which had existed since the 1300s and whose ruling class was Turkish, ruled over large minorities of Greeks, Armenians, just more and more. The most numerous group in the Ottoman Empire were the Arabs, besides the Turks, and there were almost as many Arabs as there were Turks within the boundaries of the Ottoman Empire. Now, all of these empires had had independence movements going on for a long time. The 1800s had been a period when the ideas of what we call nationalism were a big deal. This idea says that ethnic or national groups are separate and distinct with their own interests, and that they deserve sovereignty over their homelands. 
Well, as long as the empires existed, that wasn't going to happen. The empires crushed any nationalist uprising. And before 1914, the empires seemed as strong as ever. But when World War I ended in 1918, the old imperial borders suddenly vanished. They were gone. The European and Middle Eastern order crumbled, fell to pieces in a matter of months. The Ottoman Empire had existed for over 600 years, and it was gone in four. The Habsburgs had dominated Central Europe since the 1500s, and their Austro-Hungarian Empire disintegrated. The Tsars were dead. The German Kaiser was in exile. For the former minorities of all these empires, it seemed like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reclaim their independence, regain their national homelands, and build a new system of national states, not just countries, nations, in the ashes of the empires. Nationalism joined revolution as the great destabilizing force of the years after the armistice. These various peoples weren't the only ones interested in the future. The victorious allies, the United States, Britain, France, and Italy, all met at Paris in 1919 to try and figure out what the world would look like in World War I's aftermath. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson arrived with the highest ideals of all. In his 14 points, he had officially supported the re-establishment of Poland, self-determination for the peoples of the Central Powers, and the creation of liberal democracies in the new governments of Europe. But the British and French believed this to be hopelessly naive. They had their own ideas about what would happen to the defeated empires. The Paris Peace Conference is most infamous for the Treaty of Versailles that the Allies imposed on Germany, but it ended up being a complete failure for many reasons that had nothing to do with Versailles. One of the biggest reasons for this failure was that during the war years, the Allies had made promises to various groups and to each other about who would get what when the war was won. Well, the bill was coming due, and no one could agree on how it should get split up. The clubs and boardrooms and salons of Paris teemed with men in suits and mustaches, arguing over whether Germany should have this chunk of Silesia, or who would get this slice of Turkey, or whatever, whether this port city should go to Italy, Serbia, or Hungary. Another big problem with the whole idea of splitting Europe up into national states, a lot of these ethnic groups were mixed together. In many places, there was no way to draw a border between, I don't know, Germans here and Polish here, or Hungarians here and Romanians here. People mixed together in these areas. Wherever you drew the border, someone would be on the wrong side. This meant that lots and lots and lots of regions were highly disputed. If this bit of land has 50% Polish people and 50% Lithuanian people, who gets it? Well, what if there's an important iron mine that both sides want? What if it's Lithuania's or Poland's only access to the sea? But the even bigger problem was that events on the ground were out of the control of these guys at Paris. Many of the peoples of Europe and the Middle East did not wait for Britain and France to tell them what their countries were going to be. Or when they were told, hey, you're going to have these borders, they ignored them. They realized that the situation on the ground was more important than what people in Paris in their suits and their bow ties thought, and they acted accordingly. Of course, the Allies had just won World War I, so you'd think they would have the military force to make their agenda happen. But you'd be wrong. The Allies were barely better off than the countries they had defeated. 
Britain and France were exhausted by four years of war and millions of dead, and their people wanted peace, not to invade Hungary or Turkey or Poland to enforce some asinine border dispute. The United States had never been super thrilled about overseas wars to begin with and had no real desire to become the world's policeman. The upshot is that the Allies only had a limited ability to enforce what they put on paper at Paris. And all across Europe and the Middle East, the people at the sharp end took matters into their own hands. So you see what I'm getting at. The collapse of empires created a free-for-all for territory, and the Allied victors of the First World War found themselves increasingly helpless to control the course of events. Eastern Europe and the Middle East would descend into anarchy after the armistice, as new countries were violently, traumatically born. Now I can't go through every nationalist conflict in this episode, I'm not going to try because it was chaos, an utter mess. Each of these wars is like an episode or two on their own. Every single new European border after World War I, from 1917 to 1923, ended up being drawn in blood. The wars for territory began literally hours after the armistice was signed in 1918. I'm not joking, there were places in Ukraine where within hours of receiving the radio broadcast of the armistice, Polish and Ukrainian troops were fighting each other. The newly proclaimed state of Czechoslovakia immediately started fighting Polish and Hungarian militias over disputed territory. Romania invaded Hungary to secure the annexation of Transylvania. Serbian armies flooded into the former southern territories of Austria-Hungary, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, to set up a pan-Slavic kingdom of Yugoslavia. As 1918 rolled into 1919, none of these conflicts showed any signs of slowing down. Though the British and French tried to intervene, there wasn't much they could do besides watch. One of the largest nations to emerge from the ruins of the empires was Poland. Despite Polish lands being split between three different empires, its people had retained a strong sense of patriotism ever since their nation had vanished in 1795. As Austria-Hungary and Germany collapsed in November 1918, a Polish state declared independence under the military leadership of Józef Piłsudski, and he began to cobble together a Polish army to fight for its borders. It was just in time because, as I mentioned, literally hours after the armistice, Polish nationalist forces were at war with Lithuanian and Ukrainian nationalist groups to the east, and German and Czech forces to the west. The Russian Empire, Lenin's prison of the peoples, was full of nationalist movements of its own. With the red and white armies locked in the Russian Civil War, I told you this whole thing was completely chaos, cha completely chaotic, many of the Russian Empire's former subjects seized their chance to break free from Moscow. Finland declared independence, but they soon had their own miniature Russian Civil War, with Finnish red and white factions fighting over what kind of country the new Finland would be throughout this period. Ukrainian nationalist leader Simon Petlyura tried to set up a new Ukrainian state, and Ukrainian independence groups ended up fighting the Germans, the Poles, the Reds, the Whites, the Greens, and everyone else. It was just as nuts in the non-European Russian Empire. Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan in the Caucasus all declared independence. 
in Central Asia, Turkestani independence movements tried to reestablish the old Muslim states of Bukhara and Kiva in what are now the Stan countries in Central Asia, you know, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and they got help from the pro-Turkish Ottoman Empire. Now, Lenin's Bolshevik party officially supported national independence for all these movements on paper. He may have even believed it himself, in principle if not in practice. But in this department, he wasn't always the one calling the shots. That fell to the People's Commissar of Nationalities, a Georgian by the name of Joseph Stalin. Stalin was at heart an old-school Russian imperialist who didn't believe in minority self-governance in principle or in practice. Even though Lenin had denounced Tsarist imperialism, just like the political prisons in Siberia, the prison of the peoples was just coming under new management. Stalin forced Armenia, Azerbaijan, and his native Georgia back under socialist rule, and then Bolshevik troops also went to Central Asia to repress the Muslim and Turkish rebels there. At the same time, British intervention forces arrived in Central Asia to help the new Turkish states. This caused one of the weirdest conflicts of the whole period. Get this. Stay, stay with me. British units allied with Ottoman Turkish forces, their former enemies, against the Russians, their former allies, who had released and armed German and Austro-Hungarian prisoners of war, their former enemies, to help them fight the British and Ottomans. Yes, it's like this everywhere. But the Red Army soon found itself a worthy opponent. From 1919 to 1921, Red Army troops supervised by Stalin collided with the Polish forces of Józef Pilsudski in the Polish-Soviet War. The Poles had allied with Petliura's Ukrainian nationalists and penetrated deep into former Russian territory, even capturing Kiev. But in 1920, a Red Army counterattack drove Pilsudski out of Ukraine, and soon enormous Bolshevik forces, the Red Army, was crashing into central Poland. For a world already terrified of revolution, it seemed like the revolution was going international. People were freaking out. The Russian Civil War was about to spill over into the rest of Europe. But Pilsudski was up to the challenge. In August 1920, hundreds of thousands of Polish and Red Army troops collided in the massive Battle of Warsaw. Thundering cavalry charges sliced back and forth side by side with tanks and machine guns and aircraft. Pilsudski's strategy and military assistance from the French helped turn the tide and the Red Army suffered a crushing defeat. This curbed Stalin's ambitions in Poland, for now, and a peace treaty in 1921 divided up Ukraine, with Poland receiving the West and the new Soviet Union receiving the central and eastern portions. But Stalin would not forget the defiance of Poland, and during World War II, he would have his vengeance. Austria-Hungary was undergoing a trauma of its own. In the center of all this were the two countries that had once ruled the empire, Austria and Hungary. German-speaking Austria sought union with the new German Republic. German nationalists wanted to unify Germany and Austria, but this was explicitly forbidden by the Treaty of Versailles, which greatly angered German nationalists in both countries. But the real victim of the Central European chaos was Hungary. The ancient medieval kingdom of Hungary had been a large, powerful nation, but many of its former territories were now claimed by other countries, both old and new. 
Again, within hours of the armistice, Romanian and Serbian armies invaded Hungarian territory. To make matters worse, Hungary was in the middle of the aforementioned civil war between Bela Kun's communist government, which was also fighting Czech and Romanian intervention forces, and Miklos Horty's proto-fascist counter-revolution. As the revolution disintegrated, Kun and his followers looted the art treasures of Budapest before fleeing to Vienna. And days later, on August 6, 1919, Romanian forces entered Budapest. So, in the aftermath of revolution and invasion, the Allies dismembered Hungary in the 1920 Treaty of Trianon. This treaty cost Hungary 75% of its pre-World War I territories, with most of the land going to Romania, Czechoslovakia, and the new Serbian-dominated Yugoslavia. Hungarian nationalists bitterly resented the Treaty of Trianon, and the possibility of recovering these lost territories would drive them into Hitler's arms in 1941. The partition did not occur without violence, because nothing happens without violence in this period, particularly in Yugoslavia, where the government had to suppress resistance movements that wanted a Croatia, or a Slovenia, or a Bosnia, or a Montenegro, and didn't want to be part of Yugoslavia, but really Serboslavia, because the Serbs were on top. In 1918, every ethnicity in Eastern Europe just woke up and chose violence, except for the Jews, who were mostly just trying to stay alive. The Paris Peace Conference tried to steer things in some sort of direction. British intervention with the help of Germany secured the independence of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania from Russia. The Allies even tried, tried, to let some areas vote for which country they would join, you know, who do you want to be a part of? You want to be part of Germany? You want to be part of Poland? But this inevitably resulted in, you guessed it, violence, as each side tried to intimidate or force the other out. Like bleeding Kansas in the 1850s in America before the Civil War. German and Polish militias in Silesia, Polish and Czech militias in Teschen, and Austrian and Slovenian militias in Carinthia fought bitter guerrilla struggles over who would rule their territories. So yeah, everyone's having a fantastic time in Eastern Europe. The irony of it all was that even after all of this ethnic and national violence, all this brutality, all these borderline genocides slash actual genocides in some cases, the massive autocratic multi-ethnic empires of Europe were replaced for the most part by smaller autocratic multi-ethnic states. The big prisons of the peoples turned into smaller prisons of the peoples. Hungary resented the Treaty of Trianon, which left millions of ethnic Hungarians inside Czechoslovakia or Romania. Significant minorities of Germans lived inside Polish and Czechoslovak borders, as well as Austria, and I think we know how that ends up. These would be Hitler's and Germany's justification, reuniting the German minorities, for starting World War II. Poland also had hordes of Ukrainians and Lithuanians inside its eastern boundaries, not to mention all the people who were now part of the Soviet Union who really didn't want to be. The new borders of Europe were just as much of a nightmare as the old ones, and these laid the seeds for the Second World War. The last empire to die was the Ottoman Empire. But unlike the European peoples, the Allies did not have independence in mind for most of the former Ottoman subjects. Oh no. See, most of these people were brown and or Muslim. They just weren't ready for independence. At least that was what the Europeans said. 
So rather than granting the former territories of the Ottoman Empire independence, Europe decided to carve it up like a turkey and take the parts they wanted. Even before the war, Britain and France had secretly agreed to split up the Middle East in the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916. Britain had also promised that they would support a homeland for the Jewish people in the 1917 Balfour Declaration as a misguided way of winning the support of American Jews. So Britain is basically promising, hey, we'll let the Jews settle in Palestine. But Britain had also also made promises to the Arabs for an independent Arab state. The Emir of Mecca, Hussein of the Hashemite dynasty, had launched the Arab revolt against the Ottomans in 1916 in return for promises of independence and support for an Arab kingdom. Of course, every single one of those promises went out the window after the war was over. So at Paris in 1919, Britain, France, Italy, and Greece were all daggers drawn over who would get what parts of the wrecked Ottoman Empire. Woodrow Wilson's 14 points had promised that the Turkish majority areas of the former Ottoman Empire could establish an independent state. But of course, Britain had promised slices of Turkey to Italy and Greece as a way of getting them to join the war, and France wanted their share as well. Combined with the possible independence of Armenia and Kurdistan, Turkey was about to get torn apart limb from limb the same way that Hungary had been. Sadly, there was no giblet gravy for all these pieces of Turkey. In 1920, the Allies forced the Ottoman Sultan to sign the Treaty of Sevres. This treaty handed out chunks of the Muslim Middle East to the European powers like party favors. Britain got Palestine, Jordan, and Iraq. France got Syria and Lebanon under what was supposedly international mandates or protectorates, but were really just imperialism with a pretty coat of paint. The treaty also chopped up Turkey, with France, Italy, and Greece all getting a slice, and the rest to be under Allied domination. The way the Allied countries saw it, this was their reward for the blood and treasure they had lost in the Great War. How do we justify this war if we don't gain territory out of it? Greece, in particular, was eager to take land in western Turkey. For millennia, there had been a large Greek community on the west coast of Asian Minor, the famous Ionian cities of ancient Greece. The largest city in Asian Minor, the great port city of Smyrna on the west coast, was a majority Greek city. Much like all the other nationalities of the post-1918 period, the leaders of Greece wanted to reclaim their ancient heritage and restore all Greeks to the rule of Athens. This was the Megali idea, the dream of a pan-Hellenic state, a pan-Greek state that might even resurrect the long-lost Byzantine Empire. The Greeks landed an army at Smyrna in May 1919 to secure their claims to the city, and this invasion started the cycle of ethnic violence pretty much immediately. The Greek soldiers committed terrible, murderous atrocities in the area of Smyrna, trying to cleanse the land and restore it to the Greek nation. The borders of the Allies' rule in the shattered Ottoman Empire split communities and nations down the middle, all across the Middle East, not just in Turkey. In French Syria, the French-backed Maronite Christian minority was set up over the local Muslims, which enraged them and would commit to later ethnic violence. In Palestine, the Arabs vented their anger on the local Jewish population in protest against the possibility of a Jewish state, which led the Jews to arm themselves and start talking about violent action to establish said state, which led the Arabs to more violence, etc. 
If the Europeans thought that imposing their will on the Middle East would be easy though, they had another thing coming. Independence riots erupted in 1919 in British-ruled Egypt, soon followed by similar revolts in Palestine, Jordan, and an outright war in Iraq that the British had to, an insurgency the British had to suppress throughout the early 1920s. Arab nationalists in Syria fought a war with the French in 1920. There was fighting in Arabia starting in 1919, as the inner Arabian dynasty of Abdulaziz ibn Saud fought against the British-backed forces of the Hashemites of Mecca. By 1925, Ibn Saud would defeat the Hashemites and reorganize most of Arabia into a new kingdom under his rule. He would call it Saudi Arabia. But the greatest resistance came from Turkey. A former Ottoman officer named Mustafa Kemal, sent into central Turkey under orders to demobilize the Ottoman army, instead rallied and raised up a Turkish resistance movement to stop the Allied invasion of his country. Kemal was a war hero, the man who had passed into legend leading the Ottoman resistance at Gallipoli in 1915. Now he rallied Turkish nationalists to his cause with one goal, to undo the Treaty of Sevres, to stop the Allied powers from wiping Turkey off the map. From his base at Ankara in central Turkey, Kemal was surrounded by enemies. The British in Istanbul, Greeks to the west, Italians and French to the south, Armenians and Kurds to the east. But Kemal was a talented political leader and something close to a military genius. Allying with the Bolsheviks in Russia in order to gain arms and equipment, Kemal's Turkish armies defeated the Armenians and the Kurds and the French and the Italians, then turned to confront their most dangerous enemy, the Greeks. The Greco-Turkish War was not a clean conflict. After Kemal defeated them in several bloody battles in 1921 and 1922, the Greeks retreated across central Turkey, inflicting horrible atrocities on the Muslim population as they went. And as the Turks pursued their vengeance against the Greek-speaking populations in their path was equally horrible. All this culminated in one of the greatest single tragedies of the post-war period. As the Greek army evacuated Smyrna, the local civilians were helpless against the wrath and rage of the Turkish onslaught. The Turks stormed Smyrna and immediately broke down into massacre. Soon the Greek and Armenian quarters blazed with fire. Hundreds of thousands of refugees fled the sacking of the city, and many, many women were raped. Orthodox priests were slaughtered, homes destroyed, people cut down in the street. One British officer saw the sacking of Smyrna from a ship in the harbor. Here's what he said. All morning the glow and then the flames of burning Smyrna could be seen. We arrived about an hour before dawn and the scene was indescribable. The entire city was ablaze and the harbor was light as day. Thousands of refugees were surging back and forth in the blistering quay, panic-stricken to the point of insanity. The heart-rending shrieks of women and children were painful to hear. At least 100,000 Greeks and Armenians may have died in the Great Fire of Smyrna, and many more died in other massacres across Turkey before the end of the Greco-Turkish War. And thousands more died in the population transfers that followed, as the Greek and Turk states exchanged their ethnic minority populations to get all the Turks out of Greece and all the Greeks out of Turkey. 
The Greek community that lived in Asia since the time of Socrates was wiped out of existence by genocide or by forced deportation, and Greece was utterly bereft of its former Muslim population. With Kemal having expelled the Europeans, he was lionized by his countrymen as Ataturk, or the Great Turk, and the new Treaty of Lausanne in 1923 acknowledged Turkey's independence. From the ashes of the Ottoman Empire, the modern nation of Turkey had been born. It was yet another border soaked in blood after the armistice. Just like Europe then, in the Middle East, the victorious allies were increasingly unable to control the course of events. It was just off the rails. Nationalism joined revolution as the great destabilizing element that filled the void these shattered empires had left behind, and the peoples of these countries forged every border in blood and rage. So I ask you again, does it sound like the war was over? Does it sound like the Great War ended? Did the armistice of 1918 stop the violence? or just force it to take different forms and different shapes. But the victorious allies were not immune to the turbulence of the post-war period. Even countries who were not torn to pieces by the post-war struggle felt the reverberations of violence and bitterness. Violence that has been forgotten for far too long. Because we're about to cross the Atlantic. Let's see what happened in America after the armistice. When the Great War ended in 1918, soldiers from every nation took off their uniforms and tried to go back to their lives. But many men who had gone through the fires of war came home to a country in chaos, a country they didn't recognize, and they wondered just what the heck they had fought for. They didn't come home to a quiet, peaceful existence. Russian or Hungarian or Turkish soldiers, of course, returned to find home torn apart by civil war and ethnic conflict. But even countries that weren't part of these wars for territory in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East were shaken after 1918. Veterans in every country that had fought in World War I worked out the brutalization, despair, and trauma of their experiences in action back home. The embittered veteran became a staple of the post-1918 world, much like the embittered Vietnam vet became a staple of the 70s and 80s. The war had taken so much from so many people and their countries that many felt that it had been for nothing. Or worse, they felt like they'd been betrayed. Some countries felt they didn't get their fair share of the profits or the spoils. Some resented being blamed for the conflict. Some returning soldiers felt that their sacrifices were neglected because of the color of their skin or the land of their birth. They felt that they had earned the right to be treated as equals, only to return to a nation where they weren't. For all these reasons and many more, the third legacy of the First World War, after revolution and nationalism, was bitterness. In the United States, there was one group that had plenty of reason to be bitter. African American veterans returned from the trenches to a land that barely treated them like people. Jim Crow ruled the South and surprisingly large areas of the North. 
black Americans were not just subject to segregation, but they were also barred from voting, could not serve on juries, and lived in the shadow of murder and terrorism. Lynching on the mere suspicion of a crime, or for no reason at all, was incredibly common, often backed up by local law enforcement, and white mobs attacked black communities at least once a year. Since the white mobs that killed black Americans were almost never punished, it served as a message, a way to keep those people in line. Much like the Jews in Central and Eastern Europe, there was a widespread belief in white America that black Americans could never really be part of the country. Some Southern black leaders, such as Booker T. Washington, believed that African Americans needed to progress through building their own communities, businesses, and educational institutions to do their own thing rather than trying to directly challenge Jim Crow, rather than trying to force integration into the white communities. So when the United States entered World War I in 1917, Many black Americans believed that this was their chance to prove they belonged to the American community. Thousands of black families migrated north to take up industrial jobs to support the war effort by replacing white workers who had been called up by the draft. Along with movements before and after the First World War, this great move became known as the Great Migration. That's why we have large black minorities in cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. But the new arrival of black communities caused conflict with pre-existing white communities, mainly Irish and Italian immigrants, and racial violence erupted in Chicago, New York, and St. Louis, almost all one-sided, usually involving white mobs torching black neighborhoods. African Americans also wanted to prove they could serve directly and volunteered en masse for the United States military. And they were outstanding. The Harlem Hellfighters of the 369th Infantry Regiment had one of the best combat performances of any unit in the war. But if the contrast needs to be any clearer for you between what they contributed and how they were treated. A New York newspaper in 1918 ran two pieces side by side. One was about the brave performance of the Harlem Hellfighters in France. The other described how a white lynch mob had burned a pregnant black woman alive in Atlanta. No one was punished. This was Jim Crow. Black America had made an implicit bargain with the United States government that in exchange for supporting and assisting the war effort, the federal government would move towards racial equality. Black soldiers returned from overseas, having fought the Germans in the trenches of World War I, ready to fight for the right to be treated as equals. But the United States government had no intention of filling its end of the bargain. Not only was Woodrow Wilson incredibly racist, even for his time, but the United States was experiencing one of the greatest waves of white nationalism in its history. Birth of a Nation, the first feature-length film, had premiered in 1915. It depicted the Ku Klux Klan as noble heroes fighting against black domination of the South. This directly caused the rebirth of the KKK during World War I, and from 1915 to the mid-1920s, the Klan was at the peak of its power. At one point, the Klan even controlled the state government of Indiana, like the governor and most of the state legislature were all Klansmen. And on top of all this, there was the Red Scare. Most American leaders tended to see black Americans fighting for their rights as the agents of Bolshevism. The media shrieked about the rise of communism and labor unrest, and they linked it directly to the black desire for civil rights and equality. 
Woodrow Wilson, in a private conversation, said, The American Negro returning from abroad would be our greatest medium in conveying Bolshevism to America. It would not be the last time in American history that a fight for racial equality would be mistaken, somewhat maliciously, as a front for communism. Just like the Jews in Eastern Europe, black Americans were persecuted for their supposed links to revolution. With violence already at the tipping point in many cities, with the KKK on the march, with thousands of black veterans returning home from the war front, and with the Red Scare and labor unrest at fever pitch, the summer of 1919 erupted in violence. Washington, D.C., Norfolk, Virginia, St. Louis, city after city were all in flames as white mobs attacked black communities. This wasn't particularly new, but what was new was that African Americans, usually led by World War veterans, fought back. The Chicago race riot was the worst urban violence of 1919, with just absolute terror after a young black man was murdered for swimming on the white side of Lake Michigan. 50 people were killed. A white mob in Arkansas, assisted by the KKK and the U.S. Army, killed as many as 237 black people in the Elaine Race Massacre. There are a thousand other examples. This was a national phenomenon. The labor and racial violence of 1919 became known as the Red Summer, and it is absent from almost every American history book. Though the Red Summer was the worst violence of the era, it wasn't the most famous. The Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, which is only recently becoming well-known, has killed at least 300 people, and the white mob and National Guard combined to destroy the most prosperous black community in America. The KKK wiped the black town of Rosewood, Florida off the map. They literally annihilated it in 1923. This was widespread, shocking, brutal violence committed to reassert white authority over returning black World War I veterans to remind them of their place. White supremacists were furious that black people started fighting back against the lynch mobs that had roamed unchecked for years, and this only caused the violence to get worse. The years 1919 to 1923 saw the worst racial violence in the history of America, bar none, almost none of which made it into the history books, and it was a direct outgrowth of the First World War. It was after the Red Summer and the rebirth of the KKK that many black leaders and communities gave up on the hope of somehow earning their rights and liberties as Americans. They had tried to earn their place in the country, they had tried to build their parallel communities, and look what had happened. No amount of good behavior would earn them their rights. From now on, they would have to fight for them. In the flames of the Red Summer, black leader W.E.B. Du Bois summed up the attitude in an essay. We return from the slavery of uniform which the world's madness demanded us to don to the freedom of civil garb. We stand again to look America squarely in the face and call a spade a spade. We sing this country of ours, despite all its better souls have done and dreamed, is yet a shameful land. We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting. But America was not the only country where a racial underclass had been oppressed for too long. 
the United Kingdom had ruled Ireland for centuries, and they had denied the Irish their rights, their religion, their language, and their sovereignty ever since the 1600s. By the 1910s, there was a growing movement in Ireland for home rule, or sovereignty within Great Britain. There were still people who talked of independence, but they were in a slim minority. Home rule was the key political issue in Britain just before the outbreak of World War I. A lot like the US government's bargain with the black community, implicit but not on paper, the British government put home rule on hold until after the war was over, with the understanding that once the war was done, it would be granted. And many Irish nationalist organizations made the move to support Britain's war effort on this understanding. The Irish volunteered in droves to show their patriotism and courage in defense of their homeland, under the belief this was the bargain they were making for self-government. But several hardline Irish groups still believed in outright independence. In 1916, during the war, they launched the Easter Rising in Dublin, where they tried to seize government buildings and proclaim an Irish Republic. The Rising was crushed in hours, and 400 people died as a result. Most Irish people did not join or support the uprising, but the British overreacted with such brutality, executing the Rising's leaders and imposing martial law on Ireland, that they pushed many Irish people into the camp of independence. Finally, in 1918, the British government tried to force conscription on the Irish population, basically saying, hey, we'll give you home rule if you agree to conscription. But this blew up the bargain that the Irish thought they had agreed to by volunteering for the war in the first place. In January 1919, two months after the armistice, the Irish formed a parliament and declared independence. The Irish sacrifice of World War I was transformed into bitterness through their mistreatment by the British government. From 1919 to 1922, the Irish launched their great uprising, their War of Independence against the British occupiers. The Irish War of Independence was a guerrilla, terrorist war, with the Irish Revolutionary Army, or IRA, assassinating, bombing, or murdering British officials and soldiers, and Irish collaborators. World War veterans fought on both sides of the war, including in the Royal Irish Constabulary, or the infamous Black and Tans that fought its own terrorist war against the IRA. This violence culminated on November 21st, 1920 in Dublin, where the Black and Tans killed 14 civilians, including two children, in what came to be called Bloody Sunday. By 1922, the British were forced to evacuate most of Ireland and give the Emerald Isle its independence. Most of it. Northern Ireland elected to remain part of the United Kingdom, and the Irish would fight a follow-on civil war from 1922 to 1923 between those who wanted to annex Northern Ireland and those who just wanted to accept the peace treaty. The border between Ireland and Northern Ireland today is just another border marked in the bloodshed after the armistice, another conflict that grew directly out of World War I, and blood would be spilled in Ireland long after the 1920s. The African Americans and the Irish were not the only people who felt they had been cheated by the outcome of the First World War. Italy had suffered almost 500,000 dead, nine times more than the United States, only to be given the cold shoulder by its former allies after the war was over. While Britain and France were happily carving up much of the Ottoman Empire, Italy wanted its share, as well as a territory in the former Austro-Hungarian Empire and in Albania. 
the British had made Italy all these promises during the First World War, which they had no intention of keeping. Compared to what they asked for, the Treaty of Versailles gave Italy almost nothing, which caused a national uproar. Italian nationalists referred to it as the mutilated victory, and they launched mass demonstrations protesting the Paris Peace Conference. The Italian delegation walked out of the Versailles negotiations. One of the chief sticking points was the coastal city of Fiuma on the Adriatic, what is now called Rijeka in Croatia. Italians were the largest ethnic group in Fiuma, but the new Kingdom of Yugoslavia also claimed the city, and the Allies were going to hand it to them. Out of fury over the peace settlement, a nationalist poet named Gabriel de Nunzio led a band of nationalists and war veterans from Italy in an invasion of Fiume. D'Annunzio and his militia captured and occupied the city. D'Annunzio's inspiring presence earned him the support of fellow nationalist movements in Ireland, Egypt, across Europe. Even though Italian troops defeated his militia and occupied Fiume themselves in 1920, D'Annunzio's movement flared up all over Italy. This was also the period of Bolshevik and Communist Red Scare in Italy, of the terror of revolution, the Biennio Rosso, where left-wing political violence was just everywhere. With all this violence and threats of revolution on the rise, and with Italy on its bad terms with its former allies, and with nationalist sentiments sweeping the nation, the counter-revolution began. The World War veteran and former socialist Benito Mussolini formed an anti-Bolshevik combat league, or the Fasci di Combattimento, better known today as the Fascists. Many of the fascists were hardened combat veterans from the World War, a group of traumatized and broken men that Mussolini called the aristocracy of the trenches. Starting in 1919, the fascists engaged in street fights with the communists. Though Mussolini had begun his career as a socialist, he quickly co-opted the radical nationalism of the Nunzio's movement and turned away from the left. When the socialists launched a general strike in 1922, Mussolini used the fear of revolution, the rise of nationalism, and especially the bitterness of World War I veterans to force his way into power. Mussolini demanded that the government give the fascists political power so they could defeat the communists and restore Italy to its former greatness. In October 1922, Mussolini's followers began the March on Rome in deliberate imitation of the March on Fiume, which culminated in the king making Mussolini his prime minister. The decision between the chaos of the far left and the law and order of the far right seemed like an easy one in the light of the revolution and the Red Terror. For many Italians, liberalism and democracy had failed them, and communism threatened to destroy everything. In their eyes, only a revolutionary right-wing movement could lead Italy into an uncertain future. Fascism was on the rise after the armistice. And now, the country I've been saving for last. Let's go to Germany. Nowhere was the bitterness of World War I worse than in Germany. The demobilization of the German army left hordes of war veterans penniless or starving. Some Germans even blamed them for losing the war. Germany suffered from food shortages, the Spanish flu, and bitter cold in the darkness of the 1918 winter. And widespread political violence brought fear and confusion home to the German people. 
The war had been bad, sure, but the bitterness, the confusion, the malaise after 1918, after the armistice, seemed even worse. And on top of all this, only two months after the end of the war, in January 1919, the terror of revolution came home. A group of left-wing radicals called the Spartacus League staged an armed insurrection in the streets of Berlin. Led by Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, the Spartacus were a Bolshevik-style communist party that advocated a revolution along the lines of Vladimir Lenin. A mass demonstration flooded the streets of Berlin, and the newly founded Social Democratic government of Germany was almost helpless to stop them. And the Spartacus called for the overthrow of the moderate Social Democrats and the creation of a communist regime in Germany. With nowhere left to turn, the Social Democrats called in the Freikorps. The Freikorps were mostly radical right-wing militias that had formed in the wake of the German Revolution, usually made up of jaded war veterans. Many shell-shocked combat vets found themselves adrift and homeless in the aftermath of war, and the Freikorps offered them a sense of brotherhood and belonging that they had lost. Many German veterans joined the Freikorps because they could not leave the war behind. One Freikorps veteran remembered, We laughed when they told us that the war was over, because we were the war. The Freikorps stormed the streets of Berlin and suppressed the Spartacus, murdering many. Despite the large numbers of striking workers, no one was prepared to deal with the ruthless efficiency and brutalized violence of the Freikorps veterans. Liebknecht and Luxembourg were captured and murdered, with Luxembourg's body tossed into a canal and not discovered for months. Luxembourg's last pamphlet, written moments before her death, exemplified both the determination of the revolutionaries and the terror they struck in the hearts of the Germans. You foolish lackeys. Your order is built on sand. Tomorrow, the revolution will rise up again, clashing its weapons, and to your horror, it will proclaim with trumpets blazing, I was, I am, I shall be. The backlash to the Spartacist uprising gave a massive boost to the radical right, but even that was nothing compared to May 1919, when the Allies announced the Treaty of Versailles. Besides the territories that Germany lost and the massive reparations they would have to pay, the treaty forced Germany to accept full responsibility for the beginning of World War I, which was not, you know, really accurate. The war guilt clause, as it came to be known, generated a deep and lasting bitterness in German society. Many Germans rejected not only guilt for the war, but the very reality of defeat. A conspiracy theory began to circulate even before the armistice that Germany had not lost the war on the battlefield, but had been stabbed in the back by greedy capitalists, war profiteers, and socialist revolutionaries behind the lines. Behind these forces, many on the right saw a great left-wing conspiracy, a Jewish conspiracy that had engineered the revolution and Germany's defeat. Political violence exploded across Germany, even after the Treaty of Versailles. If the Spartacus uprising had been scary, the Bavarian Soviet Republic was worse. A left-wing violence seized control of the German state of Bavaria in spring 1919, establishing its headquarters in Munich and unleashed its own wave of red terror on the people of Bavaria. The Republic was overthrown in less than a month by the German army and the Freikorps, 
but its brief and radical reign terrorized the people. Machine guns and artillery had been used in the streets of Munich, the cultural center of southern Germany, a city of poets and musicians. It brought the war home for the first time to these people. The army and Freikorps suppressed the Bavarian left, and because of the backlash again to the communist uprising, Munich became the most right-wing city in Germany, a breeding ground for all sorts of radical paramilitary groups. But the Weimar Republic wasn't just in danger from the left. In March 1920, elements within the German army tried to launch a coup and undo the revolution of 1918 in what was called the Kopp Putsch. Only a few weeks later, left-wing labor unions again started the Ruhr Uprising. There were assassinations, coup attempts, violence almost every month. They were the mainstream now. The German political system was completely broken, with the government swinging wildly between the far left and the far right, whoever could keep it in power. The embittered veterans of the Freikorps, meanwhile, took their violence abroad. Freikorps units fought Polish and Czechoslovakian forces for the border regions of Germany, which included several large-scale battles. Other units went to Latvia and Lithuania to fight against both the Red Army and the Baltic nationalist movements. For most of 1919, Baltic Freikorps units, such as the Iron Division and the Baltisch Landwehr, carried skull and crossbones banners and fought with brutal efficiency against the Reds and the Whites. They committed horrific atrocities against the Latvian population, including the burning and destruction of entire villages. Here is how Ernst von Salomon, a Freikorps fighter in Latvia, described their actions in a later novel. We fired into surprised crowds and we raged. We shot and hunted. We chased the Latvians like rabbits over the fields. We burnt every house and destroyed every bridge and every telegraph mast. We flung the bodies into fountains and threw hand grenades on top. We slaughtered whoever fell into our hands. We burned whatever would catch fire. A giant smoke trail marked our path. We set fire to the stake where we burnt the laws and values of the civilized world. For Freikorps soldiers, they were in an otherworldly, mystical land. Der Ost, the East, where the normal rules of civilization did not apply, an attitude that would reemerge during the Second World War. They worked out their bitterness over Germany's loss and their brutalization in the war on the helpless civilians of the East. Many members of the Freikorps, men like Reinhard Heydrich, Heinrich Himmler, Rudolf Haas, and Ernst Röhm, would be among the most visible and worst of the Nazi leaders in future decades. Which brings us to the most famous bitter World War I veteran of all. A directionless, drifting Western Front vet who had witnessed the violent events in Munich firsthand. Adolf Hitler had been brutalized by the experience of modern war and driven into rage by Germany's loss, but what truly radicalized him was the bitterness and chaos of the post-World War period. Hitler's anti-Semitic speeches and forceful personality allowed him to take over one of the many small radical movements in Munich, which he rebranded as the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or NSDAP, or Nazi Party. Hitler played on the fear of communist revolution, the nationalist desire to return German minorities to the fatherland's embrace, and the bitterness, guilt, and shame of Germany's loss in the war. In November 1923, Hitler and the Nazis launched an uprising in Munich. The coup was meant to be an imitation of Mussolini's march on Rome the previous year, 
but Hitler's movement was poorly planned and premature. Named the Beer Hall Putsch after its initial headquarters, the Nazi uprising was confronted and defeated by the police in the early morning of November 9, 1923, and Hitler found himself in prison. Most people assumed that his political career was over. This right-wing rabble-rouser was done for. Hitler's Beer Hall Putsch seems hugely important to us now. To some people, like that's the most important thing you've talked about today. But we know how that story ends. For the world in 1923, that seemed like a flash in the pan that was just only one of a thousand crazy, scary, horrible, and alarming events they had lived through in the last decade. There was no reason anyone should pay more attention to Hitler than anyone else. His movement in the end was just one more sound in the cacophony of revolution, nationalism, and bitterness that came in the years following the First World War. Germany emerged from the post-war period horribly weakened and politically divided. Left-wing and right-wing violence, assassinations, agitation were always present, and the worldwide economic downturn of the early 1920s only made things worse. Neither the fascists on one side or the communists on the other believed in democracy at all, and the threat of violent upheaval was a constant. The Weimar Republic lurched towards an uncertain future just as Europe did, just as the world did. In America, the people of the 1920s would become known as the Lost Generation. A lot had been lost in those terrible years after the armistice. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? First of all, woo, that was something, right? I know I covered a lot today, and I went through it like it was some sort of race. But there was a point to that. At the start of this episode, I made the argument that World War I didn't end in 1918. I think it could be argued that it ended in 1923, possibly, with the signing of the Treaty of Lausanne that created the modern Republic of Turkey. That ended the last real open conflict that followed directly from World War I. It's hard to say that the war had ended in 1918 when the fighting continued, when the fighting didn't stop, just in a different form and under different leaders. People can quibble, I guess, but I think I've made a strong case that World War I continued, just in a different form. And that's why I went through these events so quickly to show just how the violence of World War I not only didn't end, but how all these events were linked together, a continuing conflict. Revolution in Russia spread across Europe, and the fear of revolution affected politics in Italy and America. Nationalism linked the struggles in the Middle East, Russia, Central Asia, Ireland, and Germany. Bitterness from the broken promises and failed dreams of the World War caused racial violence in America, genocide in Turkey, red and white terror in Russia, and the rise of fascism in Germany and Italy. Look at the Russian Civil War. This happened. This started during World War I. The war to end all wars didn't even end the other wars that started during it. And for all that, the years from 1918 to 1923 often just get lost. Drop from the narrative. Some of the biggest histories of World War I, even major podcast series, just stop in November 1918 and say, well, it was over. As if all the stuff that came after that wasn't just as, if not more, important. 
United States history book, I remember my high school history book, tend to skip right from World War I to the Roaring Twenties without ever touching on the Red Summer or the KKK or the First Red Scare or all the labor violence. And I just want to throw out there, I didn't cover everything. I didn't even talk about the labor violence because that would mean involving France and Britain. I didn't cover everything. I didn't even talk about Japan or China or the Czechoslovak Legion or the West Virginia Coal Wars or the Third Anglo-Afghan War or Spain or Bulgaria. Geez, I didn't even cover the Mexican Revolution, which is raging throughout this period, or the Spanish flu. Side note, at some point in this podcast, I do want to cover several of these events in more detail, especially the Irish War of Independence, the Greco-Turkish War, and the Polish War of Independence. So keep an eye out for those sometime in the future. I want to touch on the Polish War as early as next year. And all of this is so important, though. If it were up to me, it would all get equal treatment with the First World War, because these were the important changes that the First World War caused, and they're still with us today. The Soviet Union was born in the Russian Revolution and Civil War, and its fallout is still everywhere. Russia still contests the borders of Poland and Ukraine and the Baltic states. The Yugoslav Wars in Bosnia and Kosovo were created by the borders that 1918 drew. Kurdistan is divided up today because of decisions made by the Treaty of Lausanne. Speaking of that, the borders the Allies drew in the Middle East are causing problems as I speak with the Syrian Civil War and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, all these random borders Europe drew over the Middle East without regard for ethnicity, nationality, religion, any of it. But of course, most immediately, the years after the armistice were what made the Second World War inevitable. Most of Europe was brutalized and traumatized by the revolutions, upheavals, hungers, and instability of the years after 1918, even more so than the war itself. It hardened the people of Europe to violence. It's one thing for war to be on the front lines far away. It's another thing for revolution to be on your doorstep or a nationalist mob to be on your street. These fears and hatreds transformed the Europe of lights and glamour into a dark, bitter continent full of insecure countries that feared and hated each other. The Second World War, with its genocides and horrors and slaughters, had its preview, its prequel, not in World War I, but in the years 1917-23. to But even aside from all those details, what can we learn from the period after the armistice? We've seen so many people in this episode broken. I keep using that word brutalized, traumatized, hardened by their experience of modern war, and it permanently shaped their worldview. Adolf Hitler and Mustafa Kemal, the Harlem Hellfighter and the Red Army Soldier, the Irish Revolutionary and the Italian Fascist, the Freikorps Grenadier and the Arab Warrior, were all transformed by what they experienced and the civilians of Munich, of Chicago, of Budapest, of Smyrna, of Dublin, were all brutalized in return. The destructive power of war extended far past the trenches. Remember what that Freikorps soldier said. When they told them that the war was over, they laughed, because they were the war. And he was right. What I want to leave you with today is that war doesn't end when the treaty is signed, or even when the shooting stops. People carry it with them long after the guns are silent, long after the history books are written, and entire countries and nations carry its scars into the new age. Even if my thesis is wrong here, World War I didn't end in the minds of those that lived it. It didn't really end for all of us. 
It certainly didn't end after the armistice. Thanks a bunch for listening to me today. I hope you learned something, if it was, even if it wasn't a happy something. Thank you also for your continued support of this podcast. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you want to read some of the heaps of stuff I've written about World War I or just check out a bunch of my ramblings, you can go to my website, leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. You want to support in other ways, donate to my book fund. I have a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect, so if you've got advice, I'd love to hear it. And coming up, next week is going to be a break week. I have the very first of what we're going to call unfiltered soldiers out for you. It's an unstructured talk. It's an unstructured rant from me about some obscure subject I'm interested in. But after that, we're going to start the first series on the first Monday of November. Get ready to hear all about the Jacobite Wars, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the last rising of the Highlanders, and the Battle of Culloden. On November 1st, the story begins on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>